0: Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is, lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio.
1: Let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you from Psalm 29. Give unto the Lord, O ye mighty.
0: Give unto the Lord glory and strength.
1: Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thundereth.
0: The Lord is the
1: The voice of the Lord is powerful.
0: The voice of the Lord is full of majesty.
1: The voice of the Lord divideth the flames of fire. The
0: voice of the Lord shaketh the wilderness.
1: The Lord will give strength unto his people.
0: The Lord will bless his people with peace.
1: So lift up your hearts.
0: We lift them up to
1: the Lord. Let's pray. Give, O Lord, strength to thy people against the ills of all adversity. Enrich us with the blessing of thy peace, that in the abundance of our quiet we may all give glory to thee in thy holy temple, and forgetting the misfortunes of this life may ever render to thee honor and praise. Wherefore we say, glory be to the Father that commandeth the waters, glory be to the Son who is mighty in operation, glory be to the Holy Ghost who shall give his people the blessing of peace as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And amen. Amen. Well, last week we gave a brief history of the Nicene Creed and uh, explained why we confess this creed in our worship service. Now, This morning I want to answer a common question that people have uh, when they recite the ancient creeds, and that is, uh, why do we confess, as it says towards the end of the Nicene Creed, we confess... One holy, catholic, and apostolic church. What does that even mean? These four words, one, holy, catholic, and apostolic, are what we might call the four marks of the church. The church is one, in the sense that we are all members of Christ's body, and Christ's body is undivided. As it says in Ephesians 4, There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Therefore, we confess that the church is one. The church is also holy, holy in the sense that we are set apart and distinguished from the rest of the world. Paul calls Christians saints, or in Hebrews 3.1, we see they are called holy brethren, Even the children of one unbelieving parent are considered holy, according to 1 Corinthians 7.14. Therefore, we confess that the church is a body that is one and is holy. The church is also Catholic, which comes from the Greek word katholikos and means universal or according to the whole. All Christians are Catholic Christians in the sense that we are all members of the universal church. This is not to be confused with being Roman Catholic, which, if you think about it, is a contradiction in terms. How can the church be both universal and governed by the Pope of Rome at the same time? We deny that this is possible or scriptural in any way. So when we say Catholic in the Nicene Creed, we mean universal. And as Protestant Christians, we are actually the most Catholic of all denominations, While many other other branches of the church have anathematized, excommunicated, and regarded as without salvation those who are in fact true believers, we as Protestants, as Reformed Presbyterians, acknowledge that all who are baptized and all who profess the Lord Jesus are one holy Catholic church with us. Finally, the church is apostolic, meaning we can trace the history of Christ's covenant church in 2023 all the way back to the apostles of the New Testament. There has always been a true church on earth, and our family lineage is a continuation of that unbroken faith that was once delivered to the saints by the apostles. So this is what we mean when we say, and I believe, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so as you're able, let us kneel before the Lord. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen.
0: But we are risen and stand upright.
1: For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's Covenant Church, because you have confessed your sins, holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ.
0: Thanks be to God.
1: Our sermon text this morning is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 30. These are the words of God. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. But ye know the proof of him, that as a son with the Father he has served with me in the gospel. Him therefore I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and companion in labor, and fellow soldier, but your messenger, and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all, and was full of heaviness, because that ye had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick, nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I sent him therefore the more carefully, that when ye see him again, ye may rejoice." And that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such in reputation, because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life to supply your lack of service toward me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul, of Timothy, of Epaphroditus, and the Philippians. And we ask now that you would teach us to imitate them in the ways that we ought, for we ask this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. When our Lord Jesus ascended into heaven, scripture says that he gave gifts to men. The chief gift was the gift of the Holy Spirit who was poured out at Pentecost, but together with that gift was another gift that might surprise us. Man was given the gift of church government, or what we might call church officers. Ephesians 4 says, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. God gave the church ministers. Christ gave his bride handmaidens to prepare her for her wedding day. Uh, Paul speaks this way in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Christ gives us church government, he gives pastors and teachers to protect the purity and chastity of the bride, to protect his betrothed from the serpent-like deception that is corrupting people's minds. There are many corrupting and demonic spirits in our age. Our culture is rank with idolatry. And one of the functions of our worship service and why we have so much scripture embedded in it is because the church is called, in First Timothy 3.15, the pillar and ground of the truth. We are the pillar and ground of the truth. The teaching ministry of Christ's covenant exists to publish the truth and refute error. As elders, the ministry of the word and prayer is our primary duty and responsibility before God. But in addition to teaching, there are many other duties that God requires of shepherds, and we're going to see some of those uh, duties in our sermon text today. Um, In this text, as we're working our way through Philippians, uh, we are given a, a beautiful portrait of what the relationship between a church and its leadership should look like. Or as I have entitled this sermon, The Bride and Her Ministers, we could ask, what are the duties and responsibilities of the bride and of her ministers? That's really the focus of this portion of Philippians. So we hit, we hit kind of the high peak of uh, theology a couple weeks ago on Christmas, and now we're, we're starting to get into uh, really the, the midpoint of the letter, the reason why Paul is writing uh, to let Uh, the Philippians know what Paul's travel plans are. Now, um, let's get the the context again in front of us. Uh, In case we have forgotten, the year is 62 AD. Paul is in prison in Rome. Good. And the emperor is? Nero. And Epaphroditus has just traveled how many miles, roughly, to bring a gift to Paul? 800. There we go. We're on this. All right. Rome, Nero, 800 miles. We're going to get this by the end of the book. All right. So, so Epaphroditus uh, makes this long and uh, really difficult journey. Uh, you, could, you could go on Google Maps and, and just see what would it take to walk from Philippi to Rome, and it will chart uh, a path for you. And uh, without cars or anything, this probably took him uh, over a month. And we are told in our passage that as a result of this journey, Epaphroditus gets sick and almost dies. However, God has mercy on him and he uh, recovers. Uh, this is just kind of a little side note here, but some people have this belief that Christians should never get sick or that we uh, should be instantly healed. Well, there are many occasions that you see within the New Testament, within the apostolic circle, uh, guys who are with the apostles getting sick And they're not miraculously, instantly healed or even protected from illness. Uh, Paul will even recommend to Timothy, who seems to have some, I don't know, some stomach problems, uh, to take a little bit of wine with his water. So, uh, that's just a side note. Note that people get sick, apostles get sick too. Um, We learn in verses 19 to 30 some important information about uh, this, this letter of Philippians and the order of events. As they happen. And if you've ever wondered, uh, at some point I'll, I'll probably do a sermon, just like a, a biography of Paul's life. But you really have to piece together the book of Acts and these little sections of the letters to understand everything that happens in Paul's life, which is really the first. Uh, church history there is. So this is our family history, and it's it's fascinating when you get into the chronology about where he goes and when and why, and, and Timothy's here, and then uh, you see uh, Eusebius. He's really the father of church history. He's writing in the 200s. Um, the, the early church historians are discussing where the gospel went, how far it went to the farthest reaches of the world, and you can kind of look at some of these figures here and figure out, all right, how far did Paul get? Uh, Some some allege that he made it to Great Britain. I don't don't know if that's true. We know, though, from Romans that he was trying to get to Spain. So um, all that to say, Paul writes Philippians, and he sends it by the hand of Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is the messenger, and he makes this long and life-threatening journey again to deliver Paul's thank-you letter to them. So uh, Epaphroditus is sent with this letter of Philippians. He's carrying Holy Scripture, and he's risking his life uh, to get it there. Paul also intends, we learn, to send Timothy to check on the Philippians just as soon as he finds out the status of his court case. So he's in uh, custody, some form of house arrest probably by now, and he's waiting to hear, is he going to get his hearing before Nero, and, and how's that going to go? And it seems here that he's pretty optimistic that he's going to be cleared of the charges and set free, because he says, um, I trust in the Lord, this is verse 24, I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. So he's expecting, we think, a release. Uh, if that happens, he plans to visit them. But either way, he's going to send Timothy to them. So uh, the order of events: if if we're the Philippian church, just imagine what would have happened. Is Paul planted the church? He he goes off. We send him a gift, and Epaphroditus takes that gift. We learn somehow that the gift arrives. We know this is. I don't know what what the odds are that he's going to make it, but uh, we're praying. You know, we're praying. Epaphroditus make it to Paul and then we hear that he's sick so it goes out on the church email Epaphroditus is extremely sick and he might die we should we should pray for him and they're kind of left in suspense so uh, we don't know when they found out whether Epaphroditus recovered or if it was when he shows up in Philippi surprise guys uh I'm not dead and I have a letter from from Paul It very well could have uh, gone like that. Remember, there's not email the way that there is today. Uh, So sometime later, Epaphroditus shows up with Paul's letter, recovered. And then a little after that, Timothy arrives, which uh, you could say Philippians is part of uh, Paul's way of letting them know, be ready for Timothy and be ready for me when I I come to visit you. Make sure things are in order. And then uh, hopefully Paul would arrive himself. So that's the the historical context here, and then the way I want to walk through uh, these verses is uh, by answering just two really basic questions, and they are these. Number one, what do faithful ministers do, and what do faithful churches do? What do faithful ministers do, what do faithful churches do? And we're going to use Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, and the Philippians as our examples, so that's where we're going. So what do faithful ministers do? Number one, faithful ministers seek to know the state of the flock. Paul says in verse 19, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. Uh, Proverbs twenty-seven twenty-three says, Be thou diligent to know the state of thy flocks, and look well to thy herds. Paul is a true shepherd, and in imitation of Christ, the chief shepherd, he cares for the sheep. And this means he wants to know, how are they doing? Are they healthy? Are they sick? What problems are they facing? What is their diet? Are they reading scripture? Are they praying? What questions do they have? Are they holding fast to the truth, or are they wandering into error? a faithful minister inquires to know the state of the flock. In Paul's situation, he's planted churches all over the Mediterranean, and it would be physically impossible for him to visit every family in the church. And so just as Moses had to delegate responsibility following his father-in-law Jethro's advice, so also we see Paul delegating these kinds of roles in the church. Uh, One of the ways that we do this at Christ's Covenant is we have everyone's name on a spreadsheet, and then we try to assign an elder to each uh, member household. And we're actually trying to work out, uh, as we're now in 2023, a process, a way where the elders can each visit you who are are members and then report back to the session on some kind of regular uh, basis. So that's something that we as a church are seeking to uh, apply and obey ourselves. In Exodus 18, uh, we see that rulers are set up over thousands, over hundreds, over fifties, and over tens. And so uh, we learn from that, ideally, that we would like to have one elder for every ten households in our church. We believe that is a good ratio uh, to aim for. Uh, Right now, there are four elders, and there are 21 member households. So it's actually... Not too difficult to keep track of everyone. Uh, we, can pretty, we can do that pretty well. Um, and we would like to continue to have a healthy ratio of elders uh, to member households. But um, as the church, church grows, uh, we're going to need to find ways of maintaining a high level of pastoral care that doesn't allow sheep to, to wander off. Um, while also continuing to scale. So uh, some people really like large churches because there's often uh, no accountability there. Uh, so as much as we want the church to grow, we want to grow at a pace where everyone can still be cared for. And this is uh, a perennial challenge for both the church and its ministers, but uh, God has blessed us right now. Four elders, 21 member households, uh, if we don't visit you, that's our problem, okay? You, come, come, you can come email me. Uh, but we are going to be visiting you, and, and some of you we already have. Now, uh, in verses 20 to 22, Paul describes the kind of man that he trusts to do this work. Um, here's how he describes Timothy in verse uh, 20. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. But ye know the proof of him that, as a son with the Father, he has served with me in the gospel. So the second thing uh, that faithful ministers do is faithful ministers seek the things which are Jesus Christ. Uh, back in chapter one, we remember Paul was criticizing those preachers who were preaching out of selfish ambition and vainglory. And here Paul wants to make sure the Philippians know that Timothy is nothing like those other preachers. Yes, we can rejoice that Christ is preached by them, regardless of their motives, but they are not to be trusted as pastors to care for the flock. Timothy, on the other hand, is like-minded. He has the mind of Christ. He has been a faithful son to the Father. You see, remember that whole section on Christ, obeying, humbling himself, and here Paul is fresh out of that section, now saying Timothy and Epaphroditus are just like Christ in this way. He's been a faithful son to the Father, just like Christ was a faithful son to the Father. So these qualities of humility, of love, of seeking the things of Christ, are what make Timothy a trusted companion in the work. And this is the pattern that elders and deacons and the whole church should aspire to. We should all desire to be the one that Paul trusts to go do an errand for him. Are we there? Do we come to church to seek our own or to seek the things which belong to Jesus? Is our first thought, what can I get out of this? Or is it, what can I give to this body? Where does God want me to serve? These are two different mindsets. And Paul says, Timothy has the latter. He is a servant, a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. Sinful men naturally, by default, seek their own. And so it takes supernatural grace for us to actually just not be selfish, to care about someone besides ourselves. And yet, you see also here in this text that it is possible for this grace to become so habitual in us that Paul can say about Timothy, he will naturally care. For your state. For the Christian who walks with God, the supernatural grace can eventually become almost natural to us. Our nature is transformed as we follow Christ. Things that seemed impossible and difficult can, by God's grace and much repetition, become easy by the habit of grace, even caring for other people. Uh, Maybe some of you remember when you first became a Christian or different times in your life where you uh, maybe never read the Bible or you found it really hard to read the Bible, and then now you're like, I can't imagine not reading the Bible. Or I know a lot of you struggle to pray. Most people struggle to pray. Prayer is very hard. They cannot relate to people who can pray for a long, long time. But it is something like a muscle (laughs) that you work out You start small, you start consistent, and then eventually it actually becomes a part of you. It actually becomes easy. So this is what has happened in the life of Timothy. We learn from uh, 1 and 2 Timothy that he's been acquainted with the scriptures from infancy. He had a faithful mother and grandmother that taught him the scriptures. And so uh, parents, and I speak this to myself, uh, do not grow weary in teaching uh, your children The faith, teaching them to pray, teaching them the word, because eventually, you know, Timothy, he's probably in his 40s by now, uh, is someone who can, it can be said of him, he will naturally care for the church. Uh, That cannot be said of most most people. So start young uh, and start uh, in this uh, uh, path of faithfulness. Faithful ministers are those who seek what belongs to Jesus. It means simply that we care about what Jesus cares about. We do what Jesus does. We do not care about what people say about us. We care what people say about Christ. We prioritize what Jesus prioritizes, and his priorities become our priorities. That is the mind that faithful ministers ought to have. And this is what Timothy is like. Paul says in verses 23 To 24, uh, him therefore I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. So Timothy is qualified, he's coming, he will care for you, and Paul himself will come if he is able. Now, in verses 25 to 30, we get a uh, lengthy description of the kind of man that Epaphroditus is. And there are a number of things here. So I'm going to just list a bunch of the qualities of Epaphroditus and then uh, say a word about each of them. So uh, the third thing that faithful ministers are is they are like Epaphroditus. In verse 25, Paul calls him my brother, my companion in labor, my fellow soldier, your messenger. He's a minister to Paul. We see in verse 26, he longed for the Philippians. He loved them. Verse 27, he was beloved by Paul such that his death would have brought immense sorrow to Paul. And then in verse 30, uh, we are told he did not regard his life for the work of Christ. So these are all uh, admirable, eminent qualities in any Christian, and I want to highlight uh, just four of them. So first of all, Paul calls Epaphroditus, my brother. In the Christian life, uh, but especially in ministry, every man needs someone he can call, my brother. Paul was no exception. Ecclesiastes 4.12 says, If one prevail against a man, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Psalm 133 says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. So men, brothers, do you have brothers to lean on? Are there godly men that you trust, that you can go to for counsel, for advice, for prayer, for encouragement when things get hard? Because things will get hard. In this isolated age, faithful brotherhood is hard to find, and there are many cheap substitutes for it in the world. This might look like gangs, it might look like uh, political tribes, could look like secret societies, hunting clubs, sports clubs, car clubs, video game communities, etc. Man is a so- social creature and he craves brotherhood. And while there is a place for uh, some of those, uh, there is no substitute for Christian brotherhood with like-minded men. Psalm 133 says that when godly men get together and they dwell in unity It is good and pleasant. And here's how he describes it. It says, It is like the precious oil upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. So what does that mean? Uh, Oil is what makes you glorious. right? Oil is liquid light. It's liquid gold. And it is the thing that you anoint someone with. And Psalm 33 says that, Christian brotherhood should be like that. It should be the kind of thing that makes your face shine. Christian brotherhood should give you courage to do things that you could not ever do on your own. You guys remember uh, Jonathan and his armor bearer? This is in 1 Samuel 14. They're, they're, They're at war with the Philistines, and it's just him and his armor bearer, and he says, "'Come.'" Let us go unto the garrison of these uncircumcised Philistines. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. That's Christian brotherhood. It's finding a hill to take, not for your name, but for the name of God. The promise of the covenant was that one man could put a thousand to flight and two men ten thousand to flight. Notice the, notice the ratio there. One man put 1,000 to flight or two man 10,000. That's what you call exponential growth. What, what could you do with that threefold cord that is not easily broken? The reason why Paul is so concerned with unity in uh, this letter is because unity is extremely potent. Uh, think about the Babel project. God comes down and he says of these unbelievers that if they're united, that nothing will be withheld from them. That's, that's unbelievers. And so it's actually one of the things we learn from Babel is that it is a blessing that all the enemies of the church uh, also fight amongst themselves. That's what happened at Babel. That it wasn't one world religion against the gospel. It's now 50 different, you know, tribes and religions against the gospel. This is one of the ways that God uh, plunders his enemies. So uh, unity is important and uh, it's important for us to be able to actually take ground for the kingdom. Uh, We all need to be and to have brothers like Epaphroditus. We need it in ministry, but we need it in the rest of our lives um, as well. You guys know that I was in Moscow, Idaho, before I came here, and, and I've been across the country in different churches over the years, and in Moscow, it was really unique in that you could essentially live your life and do business with almost exclusively Christians. Maybe besides going to like Walmart or Winko to get your groceries, you could pretty much uh, do everything you did with Christians. You want to buy a house? You can find a lender, you can find way too many real estate agents, uh, you, you, could, you could find a fellow brother to, to sell it to you. There was so many men who had been working for years, we're talking generations here, to make Moscow a, what you could call, a Christian town. A Christian town, where if you needed something, a job, a reference, a doctor, a mechanic, I'm trying to find all these things now over here, and, I, and I'm feeling, man, it was really nice when I, I would see that person at church, and then I could see them when I'm taking my car to get fixed. And if they don't do it right, hmm, right? You're, that's the other thing. Your, your reputation is on the line as a worker. And so uh, this is something that takes generations to do, but this should be what we're aiming for to exercise dominion so that we are the best in whatever it is that God has given you uh, to do. Whatever trade, whatever work it is, that we have that kind of community amongst us. Um, this doesn't uh, mean in Moscow, some, some people think it's like this little reformed Disneyland. I assure you it is not, um, Because not everyone gets along, right? There's still lawsuits, Uh, There are still people that fight. If anything, it increases a lot of the risks and problems when you start, uh, maybe you had a business deal go wrong, and you have to go see that person at church on Sunday, right? And we're supposed to come and eat the Lord's Supper together. You can see why it's very tempting to just go to a different church at that point. So uh, I say that to, all that to say community is good, but it also is really hard. So as you know, the worst kind of fights are family fights. And so we want to be close. We want to be united. And yet we also have to constantly be aware of the serpent that's in the garden. So we want to raise the quality of life for one another, but also for the whole community. It was the Protestant mindset, the Protestant work ethic that built this country and much of its prosperity. But since then, now it is run mostly by the love of money rather than a love to glorify God. So if we want to see Christianity transform Lewis County, we're going to need brotherhood. We're going to need Christian friendship. We're going to need one another. Uh, the second thing, we're, we're still talking about Epaphroditus here, but there's, there's much application to be made. Uh, Paul also calls Epaphroditus my companion in labor. So this is a co-worker who can be trusted to get the job done. It is hard to find good help. It is hard to find reliable men, but this is what every Christian should be known for. If we want Christians in places of power and authority, if we would like to get to that section in the service where I pray for all of our government leaders, and we actually name Christians, all of them, isn't that what we want? Well, where are they going to come from? Well, they got to start here. They got to start in the church. Are we spurring one another on to virtue and excellence? Uh, the third thing Paul calls Epaphroditus is my fellow soldier. This reminds us that to be a Christian is to be in warfare. Baptism is our entrance into the heavenly host, the heavenly army of God, and ordination for elders heightens that responsibility. Epaphroditus was a fellow soldier in the Great Commission and seeking Christ's kingdom on earth. Fourth and finally, uh, Epaphroditus was a messenger the Philippians. Uh, and I want to take a moment to apply this to us. If you think about this journey, to make this journey would have required a certain kind of guy, uh, what, what we would probably call a young, single, expendable, expendable man, okay? Uh, so, uh, all right, honey, I got to take this letter uh, across uh, the world <laughs> to the Philippians. I'll be back in uh, three months, okay? We'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, we don 't we don 't know exactly whether he was married or not, but we know that he would have had to be uh, at least physically fit to some extent uh, street smart, courageous, and unafraid to take risks, even to risk his life and as we see his health to deliver this message. Um, now, I want to say this is a unique gift and calling that Most of you do not have, okay? Most people should not be missionaries in the jungle, and most people should not, and most people who think they are probably should not. But there are some people who God has granted these special gifts, uh, maybe in their physical constitution, their personality, their tendencies, their station in life, where being a messenger, being a missionary like this, is what God created them for. It's kind of a shame you think most missionaries are often uh, the people who go to the mission uh, to do mission work uh, foreign uh, are often young people young single people and then uh, they find it lonely they find it hard they find it discouraging and some of them lose their faith or, or they, they just come back and they never actually finish what they set out to do um, Imagine if we said missionaries should be uh, the empty nesters amongst us, right? Uh, so you could, you could die from cancer in a hospital, or you could die, uh, you know, on the, on the mission field. Uh, choose. What do you want to do? So part of it is just the American obsession with youth and spurring them on to do stupid things. So I, I want to I guard against that, okay? There's a place for young people to be risky, and we want them to take good risks, At the same time, uh, there are certain people who are called uh, to this. Uh, So the application for us then is to ask ourselves, how did God create you? What is your role and function as a member of Christ's body? And are you healthy? Are you doing your part? If we are one, that means the things that you do when no one is watching actually affects the rest of us. Okay. Remember the sin of Achan? Right? He's, he steals that Babylonian garment, hides it under his tent, and it's not just him that dies. Right? It's his family, that whole tribe gets judged. So we, we um, impact one another by what we do. So are you healthy or are you, are you the cancerous member that's going to infect the body? That's where we should start. Are, are we healthy? What is our role? Now, uh, for the vast majority of us, your calling is going to look uh, very ordinary. I put this in, in scare quotes. For example, um, if you are a woman, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2:15, that you will be saved in childbearing." What does this mean? This means that as you embrace your role as a wife and a mother, And as you suffer the difficulties that come with running a household, rearing children, etc., that will be part of how God saves you. And Paul adds, if you continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. So for most women, serving the Lord will look like embracing motherhood if and when God gives you a husband and children. And at the same time, in whatever state you are in, single, divorced, widowed, whatever, you should be living with faith, charity, and holiness with sobriety. Would people describe you that way? If Christian women were known for this, that ordinary work would be an extraordinary witness. Because this is one place where the world is uh, desperately Confused, right? People do not know what a man or a woman is for anymore. For men, uh, God made us very different, right? Uh, Jesus chose 12 male disciples to follow him around, going from town to town preaching, because that is not the life for a woman. Uh, Paul sends a man, Epaphroditus, on this arduous journey alone, and he would never send a woman to do that. Whereas women are oriented more towards the home and are in a very literal sense, man's first home, men are oriented outward towards the world. God has ordained for us to conquer, to expend ourselves, to sweat and get calluses and use our superior strength to build things. And so are you men working hard? Working hard to provide a stable home for your wife and your children and posterity, but also to be a blessing to others. Are your efforts aimed at changing things in this county to look more like Christ's kingdom? To make Centralia and Chehalis a more desirable place for your grandchildren to grow up in. Right? We don't want to give our grandchildren uh, California, a place to, to flee from. Right. So are we fighting, and are we working for that? For most of us, that is the unique ministry that Christ has called you to. All right. Uh, Finally, I want to shift now to, to talk about what faithful churches do, and I've just got two really quick things here. As a corporate body, how should the Philippians respond to the ministry of Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus? First thing, Paul says in verse 29, Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such in reputation. Faithful churches receive and hold in high regard faithful ministers. So when we visit you, be honest. Tell us, really, what is going on. If you lie to the doctor, how can he give you the right Medicine. So receive the work of the elders and the deacons and whoever is sent to you as they minister unto you. Second, faithful churches pray for the health and protection of their ministers. Uh, We see in verse 27 that the Philippians had heard that Epaphroditus was sick and might die. The prayer request had gone out to the church, and you know they were praying for him. You can imagine their concern. First, concerned that the gift reaches its destination. They had done all this work to get it to Paul, and wouldn't it be a shame if they lose the messenger, but the gift gets there? Same thing on Paul's side, to to be on the receiving end of a gift, and then the person who brought you the gift dies. Uh, Which would you rather have? (laughs) Like You should have just, please, just stay in Philippi. So there is risk. There is risk in this life. There's no way to get around it. There is danger. There is sickness. There is spiritual warfare. And the church must pray fervently for protection for its ministers. Um, I thank you for your prayers that have sustained our family as we moved here, your prayers for one another, as we have endured much sickness over the last couple months, uh, especially the elders and their children. So we thank you that you are a prayerful church. And so uh, if there's one thing that the elders are encouraged by and thankful for, it's that we are a church that, however small we are, we are a church that, that prays. Prayer is the language of love. It is the language of love between brothers and sisters. And we want to be a church that is constant and fervent in it, because God answers prayer. James 5.16 says, The prayers of a righteous man availeth much. And if we would seek to be a faithful church with faithful ministers, we must be a church that prays fervently for one another. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your love. We do thank you for this beautiful picture. Uh, We thank you for Epaphroditus' sacrifice and that we can read this letter 2,000 years uh, from when he handed it uh, to the Philippian church. God, I ask that you would give us a really clear conviction, a strong conviction and sense about how you made us, what you made us for, what you're calling us to, what opportunities you want us to pursue, what season of life we are in, whether to wait or whether to go. God, give us wisdom as a body and build us up by your Spirit in love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Before us, we have bread and wine. Of all the foods and beverages Jesus could have chosen for the church to eat each week, he chose two elements that require human labor to produce. Loaves of bread cannot be plucked off a tree like an apple. God did not make any sourdough trees in the garden. Likewise, I don't think, (laughs) likewise, a wine does not come to us flowing down the mountain like a river. It takes years of planting and cultivating. It takes talent and attention to produce a truly good wine. So why did God choose these two elements over everything else? There are many reasons for this, but one of them is to teach us that good things, even the best thing, Jesus Christ, must die to give us life. Wheat must be cut down, threshed, Beaten into powder, mixed with water and salt, and then enter the fire of the oven if bread is going to exist. The wheat must die in order to become something better. Wine would not exist without the grapes first being plucked, gathered and crushed until the blood runs out. And after that, the long process of fermentation, or in God's eyes, the process of glorification. Bread and wine are grain and grapes, glorified. They are little pictures of the gospel, of death and resurrection. And this is what God has chosen to be life unto the world. So come and welcome to bread and wine. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this. Uh, We are not all Epaphroditus risking our lives to bring scripture 800 miles, but we are all called to speak the truth in love wherever God has us. So take that risk. Speak up, deliver the truth this week, and seek what belongs to Jesus Christ. Receive now the benediction. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Amen.